0: And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes.
1: Well, good morning, Covenant. It's good to see everyone this morning. And uh, I'm going to be sitting down this morning again because I have not been able to get over this back, uh, whatever's going on, and flying up to Knoxville and back Friday and Saturday With the Legion Air didn't help. Can they cram any more people into an airplane? I have made it, I think, if I ever run for president, I am going to win because I'm going to have a one-plank platform. It's going to be, I will pass a law that prohibits airlines from putting seats so close together. And Republicans, Democrats, I'm going to unify the country because we all agree on this one thing, right? And uh, so... But it ripped up my back again, and so uh, I'm going to sit down this morning. You know, uh, we're in this series of messages called Wonderful Words, and we started with a word that really reflects one of the five solas of the Reformation, that, that bedrock concept, sola scriptura, that the scriptures alone are our guide uh, for faith and our rule for practice. It is the absolute Source for which we look to for all things related to worship of God and how to live our lives. And that's why that word inspiration and the inspiration of Scriptures is so important because in anything that we look at, the Bible is our sole final authority. Period. Full stop. Okay? And then last week, we looked again at that, going through the inspired Word of God to see what does it say about salvation. And we saw last week that our salvation is solely due to God's sovereign grace and mercy. Salvation in Christ Jesus. We are saved from the eternal death of hell, and we are saved to and given eternal life in heaven, which happens now to be our word for this morning our wonderful word, heaven. And the reason why we're going to look at this little word heaven, is because we are, it seems like, on a regular basis bombarded with some kind of story. Saw it again this week, a link on Drudge Report, you know, a guy dies and, you know, 20 minutes his soul is gone and then he hears, it's not time for you, and he comes. We always have these stories. And I'm afraid that in our modern church today, even among Christians, that more of us think of heaven and have our understanding of heaven from these kinds of encounters and books and, you know, you know, I went to heaven and splashed in the river with Jesus, and we had a water fight, and, and all these kinds of stuff that comes out. And that is now the source of what we believe about heaven rather than God's inspired word. And so we're going to come to this word heaven this morning. It's a word that, you know, I, I have to say, even in my growing up years, and especially, I saw less and less being said about heaven. You rarely hear it talked about if you watch television and, and different pastors. And I think it's not that they, people don't want to believe in heaven, but in some respects, perhaps, it's because we enjoy our life here on earth so much, and we have a wonderful life here in America, which I, I'm thankful for. But I think that we struggle with, and, and maybe don't see dying and going to heaven as that much of a value add. Well, if I have to, okay, Right because we have a nice life here. Whereas in past generations, it was like, I can't wait for heaven because life was so hard. It was so difficult and and much rougher than what it is today. And and, and, and even in a different perspective, it's like a bias has kind of developed. Even within Christian evangelical churches, in large part, this idea that, you know, you start talking about heaven and you start thinking about the future and all of these kinds of things, all that really does is discourage people from engaging with the world around us. It's that idea that we become so um, heavenly-minded that we're of no earthly good. And so the pendulum swings to the other end of the continuum, and we just don't talk about heaven at all because we're afraid of that uh, happening to us. But I gotta tell you, that's a, that's a false dichotomy. That's, there's no reason for us to think like that. Heaven is an important biblical word. It gives us great theological and, and practical value. Pastor Dick Lucas, he was, he was well-known in the 20th century. He's, he's actually still alive, I think. He's in his late 90s. He was a pastor in, in England at one of the famous churches in London. And he once said that the more we set our minds and consider the things above and consider heaven, the firmer the ground on our, underneath our feet here on earth becomes. The more we consider heaven, the firmer the ground beneath us Becomes. What's he getting at? What he's saying is that when we think about heaven, rather than making us so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly good, thinking of heaven actually makes us more valuable and better citizens of earth and better citizens of the kingdom of God as it's carried out and brought about here on earth. So we need to be thinking about heaven, we need to understand what it's about and why it's important, and most importantly, how do we get there? So this morning, this vision, this is a vision that John the Apostle is given in the book of Revelation. You read this vision, there's some things about it that make us scratch our head. That's normal, because the the genre of literature that the book of Revelation is, is called Apocalyptic. The apocalyptic style of writing had a, high, a lot of symbolism, had much metaphor and different things like this in play. And so as a result, you come up with fantastical beasts and, and everything else in this book. And it's like, wow, you know, didn't know the devil had a tail and horns and could be wrapped up in a chain. You know, I mean, all kinds of things develop when you come to the book of Revelation and you read it and you interpret it like you do, say, the book of, of, of Acts or the book of ephesians which are written in a different genre so we come to this book and we understand that here is john he's given this incredible vision and he's teaching us some important things within this style of writing about heaven the first is you know even though it's written in a very you know bizarre manner what it's communicating to us is something that's very literal heaven is real Right, Heaven is a real place. It's not just some symbolic metaphorical thing that's supposed to encourage us and then we die and we cease to exist. No, heaven is real. It exists in time and space. And we see evidence of this in the vision that John gives us. In this vision, what you have before the throne of God are the saints of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. All the people from all of history who followed the Lord, who resisted the evil of this world and sought to see the kingdom of God come about. This is the church militant. This is the church working toward the mission of our heavenly father appearing before the throne of God. And here they are, worshiping him, serving him, interacting with him. And from this little passage where they interact with God, we see some important things about heaven. The first thing is that heaven is our eternal destiny. It's the place that we go to as Christians when we die. When we die, the scriptures tell us, as Paul told the Corinthians, that when we are absent from the body, we are then present with the Lord. On the cross, Jesus turned to the thief who in the last hours of his life believed in him He turns to that thief and he says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. To the Philippians, the apostle Paul, right near the end of his life, he writes these words. He says, I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But at the same time, he goes on to write, I know that I need to stay here for a little longer because My ministry with you is not concluded and you need me for a little while longer. The expectation of the Paul as he wrote to the Corinthians, Apostle Paul as he wrote to the Corinthians and to the Philippians was that when he died, he would be ushered into the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is where those of us who die will find ourselves when we awake at that split second in time. It's also where we will live for all of eternity when Jesus comes again. You know, the book of Revelation says a lot about heaven, actually, and about the future kingdom that we will live in with God. In Revelation chapter 21, we have this incredible vision of this new city, Jerusalem, the new heaven, descending down to earth. Jesus, who makes all things new, declares himself the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and he wipes the slate clean, and he recreates this universe, and heaven and earth become as one and the Bible tells us in Revelation 21 that the dwelling place of God is with men heaven this eternal heaven is going to be an incredible place that the book of Revelation talks about especially in chapters 21 and 22 and describes it for us and some of the things that we see in these pictures of heaven in the book of Revelation is that there are there are physical aspects to this perfect, spiritual realm. Even right now, there are physical, you know, kind of characteristics to this, this heaven that, that Jesus is in right now, that our loved ones who have died are in right now, and the angels are in. Uh, so, for example, somehow, and, and don't ask me how this happens, but somehow we die, we go to heaven, yet we're still recognizable. You know, in in our soul spirit, our spirit ascends into heaven. Yet in some respects, there's like a a physical quality there where you can know and be known. And you see a couple of examples of this in the Bible, right? In the Old Testament, negatively, King Saul is having a difficult time. He doesn't know what to do. And so he decides, he gets the bright idea, I'm going to go to a witch and let her summon the Spirit, the soul of Samuel, the prophet who had been the great prophet and advisor to King Saul. And so he goes to this witch and she does her mojo. And at least in this case, God uh, allows the mojo, you know, and he sends Samuel to appear before Saul. And Saul sees him and he immediately recognizes, oh, hey, Samuel, you know, it worked. How about that? Right? And of course, it didn't work because she did her thing. It worked because God was sending a message to Saul through this event and through Samuel. And what Samuel said to Saul was not very good. In other words, when you go to witches and occultists and things like this, it is not good, it's evil. And therefore, you're gonna lose your kingdom. Congratulations. (laughs) But he recognized that it was Samuel, right? You see another example of this in the New Testament, Matthew 17. Jesus goes up the mount, mount of what was known as the Mount of Transfiguration. He takes Peter, James, and John there. And as he's there, here appears Moses and Elijah. Now, Peter sees Moses and Elijah with Jesus and says, hey, it's Moses and Elijah. Have you ever wondered how you knew that? I mean, it's not like they had, you know, photographs. It's not like he had a history class where they showed the, the paintings of, you know, here's George Washington, here's Abraham Lincoln, here's, Peter, uh, here's Moses, here's Elijah, right? They didn't have that. Yet in some way, when Peter saw them, he knew that's Moses, that's Elijah. And they were physically discernible. Uh, so there's this aspect of heaven. It's a, a perfect spiritual realm. You know, is it in another dimension? Is it, you know, go out to Pluto, hang a left, and when you hit that next, you know, there it is. I, we don't know where it's it, where it's at, but we know that it is real. That there's this physical aspect to it, even as it's spiritual. You have angels who can, you know, Jacob. We looked in Genesis, right? Jacob, the angels coming up and down the stairway to heaven, and and they go about doing their work. We see in the Bible human beings interacting with angels. They are real, tangible creatures. Right And Beings that God has created, they live in heaven. So there is certainly a physical aspect to this eternal realm, or this spiritual realm. Eternal heaven, it, it definitely, this is clear in the eternal heaven, right? Um, it, you see in Revelation chapter two, verse seven, the scripture saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. When you get to other visions of heaven, Revelation 21, 22, there's all these pictures of us having you know, dinners with the Lord Jesus Christ, the marriage supper of the lamb, right? We're going to eat fruit and drink from water. I mean, we're going to have physical bodies that have to be fueled. And, and we're going to have these types of things. That, I mean, look at Jesus after he was resurrected. He sat down, right? He ate meals with the apostles and the, the disciples. He ate fish and he ate lamb and, and all these kinds of things. So to me, what I mean, this is a very clear message. In our eternal heaven, those of us who have big green eggs, we're continuing what we do, right? Except all of our ribeyes are gonna be Wagyu quality and uh, we're gonna enjoy it. And all of you vegetarians are gonna be finally converted to the, you know, whatever. So, uh, no, I'm just teasing it, okay? But we are going to eat in heaven, in, in eternal heaven. We will eat and we will drink and we will have physical bodies and a physical location as heaven and earth become one as Jesus makes all things new. But even right now in heaven, whatever, wherever that dimension is right now, wherever that place is right now, even right now, we know that there is a physical quality to this location. Because the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, when Jesus ascended to heaven, the angels come to these guys as they're standing up there. Wouldn't you love to have had a picture of their faces, right? You know, And there, it's probably looked like my face Friday morning at 6.30 at the airport when I went through TSA. And the lady says, do you have anything in your laptop bag that is dangerous or sharp? And I said, no. And she said, can I inspect it? And I said, yes. And she pulled out my spare clip of 45 auto uh, uh, bullets for my concealed carry weapon. And uh, suddenly I found myself surrounded by TSA agents. If you had had a picture of my face at that moment in time, that would have been the apostles as Jesus went to heaven. Guarantee it, okay? You just, all the blood, you can feel the blood drain from your face and you just, you're like that, you know? And uh, so, so here they are. And, and what, did the, what did the angels say to them? They said, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So think about who Jesus was. At that moment in time, he is the resurrected perfect God man who has been eating and drinking and talking. He's been touched by the disciples. He's also walked through walls, which is kind of cool, right? So his body was different in some ways, but this person, Jesus, is now in heaven. So right now in heaven, there is a perfect human being in heaven at least one physical human being. I don't know if there's more. I don't know if this means that when we're absent from the body, present with the Lord, it does, you know, just do we get like a temporary? I don't know. I don't know what that's gonna be like, but I know at least there's one. And so the heaven is, is like this. But the most important thing that this passage reveals to us, more than you know, physical, spiritual elements, it reveals to us that heaven is first and foremost the dwelling place of God. Verse 10 Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The psalmist tells us that the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. Heaven, church, is a literal, real place. It's not just symbolic pie-in-the-sky theology. Secondly, heaven reveals the magnitude of God's redemptive plan. So recently I had my sister Pam with me for many of y'all know this for about two and a half months and and one of the things that we did in the evening just to entertain her and ourselves was we went back to all the Marvel movies right and she had never seen any of them and we watched them in chronological order. So, you know, it's Captain America, and then Captain Marvel, and then Iron Man, you know, in that kind of order, which was really cool. I hadn't seen him like that before, and it really brought a different perspective on him. I highly recommend it. But it was interesting as, you know, as it builds, it gets down to the, to the Avenger movies at the end, and there's Avengers Infinity War, and there's Avengers Endgame, right? And, and in, in Avengers Infinity War, things are not going well for the Avengers, right? It's just not, and, and Thanos is, is winning, and the things are chaotic, and there's this critical scene in the movie where you think they have a chance to defeat Thanos on this, you know, this planet when, when Dr. Strange does the, you know, strangest, no pun intended, strangest thing, right? And, and, and he basically, he sabotages all your efforts and later, he, he tells Tony Stark, he said, you know, because Dr. Strange has this ability in the Marvel Universe, he can see all the strands of possible reality. He says, I look at all the millions of strands, Thanos wins and every one of them except one. There's one slim possibility that then us ends. And then at a poignant point in the moment, he goes, we are in the end game now, right? And then the last movie of that, that, the culminating is Avengers Endgame. And I won't spoil it for you. Well, this chapter right here, chapter seven, it gives us a vision of God's end game, right? That's what we have here. Heaven, and, and in this vision of heaven, It clues us into the sheer size, the magnitude of God's endgame. And it's incredible what what we see here about his redemptive plan. We see the sheer magnitude of it and the great number of people that God is going to redeem. Verse 9 says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. uh, Number. God is redeeming a perfect number of people to inhabit his eternal heaven. And we see this huge throng of people in verse 9, but it actually isn't the first time we see them in this chapter, right? We didn't read it, but if you read earlier in the chapter, in chapter 7, verse 2, we see this vision that John is given. I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now listen. For how how many of you would say well that's as clear as mud raise your hand right? Yeah. I mean there has been so much taught and erroneously so about this passage. I know I was raised in a system of belief that said hey this is talking about something that will happen in the future. And after the church has taken off the earth for the tribulation and we get to have a seven-year time out with Jesus eating and, and enjoying life, you know, things go horribly wrong here on earth. But during that time, there's going to be 144,000 super Jewish evangelists who go all across the world and they win people to Christ. No, that's not what this passage is, is teaching at all. Okay? Um, this is not some futuristic number of Jewish evangelists, right? Notice something that, that John hears this number. He hears, in the midst of all this kind of confusing, similar, he hears this number. Let me help you understand it like that. There's two words that will help you understand what this 144,000 is all about. The two words are this, symbolic, symbolic, and sealed If you understand those two words and how that's at play in this passage, you're gonna go, wow, this is cool. Symbolic and seal. The 144,000 people here is not a literal statistic, it is a symbol of something else. Remember, this is apocalyptic genre. In the apocalyptic style of writing, numbers, especially tidy kind of Wow, contrived numbers like this, they are not to be taken, they mean something else. Something else is going on here, all right? We know that this is a symbolic number for many reasons, It's coming right after Jesus has returned. If you go to chapter six, Jesus has returned. He's destroyed evil. This is is a picture of eternal heaven that we get here, right? Chapter six, Jesus has returned. You know, horrible things have happened as he has poured out judgment upon the earth. And then you have this 144,000 referred to here. And you know, it's not literal, it's symbolic. For example, the 12 tribes of Israel listed here are not the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, you have some tribes that were the 12 tribes of Israel, not included, and you have names that were not the tribes included. This is not the literal 12 tribes of Israel. So what's going on here? Okay. John is hearing something that God sees from his perspective. Remember, church, all of us are Israel. All of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ have been grafted into Israel. We are Abraham's seed. What you have here is a picture of all Israel, old, New Testament Christians, everyone who's ever followed Jesus Christ and trusted in our God combined into one group. And it's a symbolic number that shows the infinite number of these people, okay? Look, you got four angels, right? Four, uh, north, south, east, west, all of creation, four. What's the number for God in the Bible? Three, right? Yeah, God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three times four is what? Come on, church. Three times four is what? All right, thank you very much. Okay, so you have 12. You have 12 12 tribes, 12 apostles. Later, we're going to see in Revelation 21, right, that, that heaven comes down. It's built upon the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. What's 12 times 12? Awesome. God, Now my math teacher spoke the loudest. That's awesome. 144. Okay, we're getting there. 144, second, 144, 144 one hundred forty-four. Wait, say one hundred forty-four thousand. What's one hundred forty-four times thousand? Man, you guys are pathetic. One hundred forty-four thousand. Okay, thought y'all were engineers and stuff, right? 144,000. Why thousand? Because in the Hebrew mind, the word th- a, th- a thousand was infinite. Okay, it was the. They didn't say, "Hey, we have a billionaire." We. Ha- we they would say, "We have a thousand, 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 thousand there." 1,000 was their largest. That was the number that was like their infinity number. That was their huge number, a 1,000. So in other words, you have this perfect number, infinity number, comes from all the people of God. It's a number that John hears in verse 4. He sees it in verse 9. Now he sees the crowd, the number of people that he's referred to in verse 4. And when he sees it, he says, no one can count it. It's a symbolic number that refers to just a incredible number of people that God ordained before the foundations of the world who he has brought into his family. And no man can count them. Symbolic, sealed. We see them in verse four that they have been sealed on their forehead. And we'll see this again in the book of Revelation. And it's important that we understand it because what we're seeing here is the entirety of God's people. In Revelation chapter 22, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their what? Foreheads. This 144,000, this great thing, they were sealed on their foreheads. What is the seal? The seal is the name of God. We have God's name placed upon us. What does this mean? What's the point of all this? Well, there's an excellent little book. If you ever want a great book on the book of Revelation, It's called More Than Conquerors by William Hendrickson. If you only buy one book to to read about the book of Revelation, that's the book you should get. More Than Conquerors by William Hendrickson. And he points out that this idea of sealing, it's important. Uh, We've looked at this as we were in the book of Genesis, right? In the ancient world, a seal protected something against tampering and against mischief. Think about Jesus' tomb. The Roman Empire came in. They slapped a seal upon it, right? protecting it from people, letting everyone know this is under the protection of the Roman Empire. In the ancient world, it meant protection, it indicated ownership. So if you had a title of land, that you would put your seal upon it, and that now indicated that you own the land that that title referred to. It, it also was used to certify the authenticity, the character of something, right? And so even today we have that when you, you know, on gold, they'll they'll stamp it with a seal, you know, a brand that says it's of a certain quality. And so when you think about this protection, ownership, certification, the Bible teaches us that the father has sealed us and he protects us to the very end. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Jesus sealed us when he bought us with his blood. He now owns us. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price, and and as Romans and Ephesians teaches us, the Holy Spirit seals us, certifying us, declaring that we are indeed sons and daughters of God, no longer enemies. The magnitude of what God's redemptive plan is doing here, it's breathtaking. He's saying we are his children, and cannot even begin to count it and we are always going to be protected we belong to him and we have now been changed from enemies to sons and daughters of god the magnitude of his plan sheer and uncountable number the magnitude of his plan you see it in the diversity of these people a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Heaven is going to be populated by a massive community of people who represent the peoples of this earth. In heaven, God's image is fully magnified within the color palette of the nations. If there is one verse that should convince us that all forms, all forms of racism is a sin against God's creative genius and his redemptive plan is this verse. And many times this verse is repeated throughout the book of Revelation. God has created the peoples of this earth with all of our differences and appearance and all of them are precious to him. It is abominable, abominable, to ever have the word Christian associated with any form of racism. There, There is nothing Christian about white supremacy. It is evil and it is sin. There is nothing Christian about the racism of the Arab towards the Jew. It is abominable sin. There is nothing good and righteous about the racism of the Asiatic countries that are homogenous who look at other people as gaijin. It is abominable sin. You know, it really comes down to that song that we many of us were learned in Sunday school. Jesus loves little children. All the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his, what, sight. And we get a glimpse of the magnitude of heaven in the wide diversity of the color palette and the innumerable numbers of people that will occupy it. And here they are in heaven, they're worshiping God and they're waving these palm branches. What's up with the palm branches? Right? We, we, in, actually, we interact with that every year. I love it when our children come in on Palm Sunday and they have the palms, right? And they bring them in and we sing and they're reenacting what happened on Palm Sunday with Jesus you remember what happened with Jesus? He's coming into Jerusalem and the people are waving palm fronds and they're throwing them at his feet as he comes into the city. What were they declaring? They were declaring his victory. In the ancient world, the, the conquering general, when he returned to the city and he came in, the people would greet him with the palm fronds and throw them at his feet saying, you won, you won the battle, you're the victor. Th- this scene right here in Revelation it's telling us that there aren't all these strands to God's endgame, one of which he might win if everything falls into place perfectly. What this vision is telling us that there is that in God's endgame, there's only one strand, <laughs> and he wins every single time. That's it. He's going to win, and this vision of heaven magnifies the greatness of our God who will carry out his plan to the nth degree. He will bring into his heaven every single person who he has chosen before the foundations of this world. He will not lose one of them because his seal is upon their forehead and he owns us and he will never let us go. He will never turn his back on us. One final thing about this picture, about heaven not only is it a real place that reveals the magnitude of God's redemptive plan, this vision also encourages us. Heaven encourages us to look to our future as we live in the present. The inhabitants of heaven, as we look at them in this vision, they encourage us to consider our own spiritual state. And verse eleven, or excuse me, verse thirteen says. One of the elders addressed me saying, and he asked a rhetorical question, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? John says to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Why don't don't you key in on that last sentence? Underline this idea that they have white robes washed in the blood of the lamb. What What does that mean? Well, it's kind of interesting. Just this week, I'm teaching a church history course for our LAMPS students. And we were, we were looking at the early church. And we're looking at, uh, we were looking at different things. And one of the questions that came up was baptism and in the different roles that people played in the New Testament. And as you look at the early church, you see something interesting about baptism. At least for, for several decades, they did their baptisms on Easter and, and you typically had to be a part of the church for two or three years and go through discipleship training and things like this. They wanted to make sure that you weren't going to fall away, that you were sincere in your decision to follow Christ. But when the day of your baptism came, they, they had a, a screen you know, that you couldn't see through and that was between the baptismal f- uh, font and the, and the people. And so the people would walk up behind the screen, and, and so, so for example, they'd walk up from this side and they would come behind the screen and they would disrobe. They, they, would, they were naked, right? They weren't naked, they were naked. And then they would get baptized behind the screen. And it, So now you understand why in the early church, for example, there was this role, this office of deaconesses, because the, the women were baptized by deaconesses, right? And then the guys would come up, and they might be baptized by an elder. But as they came across behind the screen, they didn't come out naked. They were given a new set of clothes. So they would walk up with their old clothes on behind the screen. They would walk out from behind the screens with this new set of clothes. Oftentimes, they were white. And they were picturing this right here, this idea that Jesus died for us. What well, we covered with salvation and the word salvation last week. He died for us because we could never earn our own salvation. We can never be good enough to purchase our own, the righteousness needed for us to be accepted to God. It's impossible. But God made him who did not know sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. These white robes that they're talking about here, this is what's necessary for every single one of us if we are going to be inhabitants of heaven. We must have our dirty robes exchanged for Jesus' clean robes of righteousness. And this comes through faith, through committing our life to Christ, following him repenting of our sins and trusting in him. And so this picture that we're given here reminds us how badly we need to exchange our way of pleasing God for the only way that pleases God, trusting in Jesus and receiving his righteousness. And so the question for all of us this morning, hear me on this. Who are you wearing this morning? Who are you wearing? You ever seen that on the, on the red carpet, right? You know, they, they interviewed them and it's like, oh, you know, Christian Bale, you look so great. Who are you wearing this evening? And they put him in, I'm wearing Gucci. Really? Okay. Who are you wearing? Are you wearing Jesus? Are you clothed in Jesus? Do you know? Are you confident that the old clothes have been taken off You've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. You've been washed clean. And now you wear Jesus. If you don't know that confidently, if you're not confident about that question, the answer to that question, please hear me when I lovingly say to you, and I do mean this lovingly, not as an insult. You're a fool if you walk out the doors of this church this morning and don't settle that question. How foolish. Come see us. Come talk to me. Come talk to our Stephen ministers. There's no more important question that we must know and be certain about. Okay? Don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. So heaven reveals to us how we become... This vision reveals how we become an inhabitant of heaven. And it gives us perspective on our current life. It encourages us to persevere. These people... Come out of the tribulation. They are before the throne of God. They serve Him day and night. There's no more hunger, no more thirst, no more scorching heat. The Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. And I love this phrase and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This passage it encourages every one of us this morning who have suffered, are suffering. Remember, the book of Revelation is written expecting that Christians will suffer. We will suffer simply because of the fallen state of this world. We will suffer because of the sinful condition of this world. And we may very well suffer as we live for Jesus Christ in various ways. So this, this is who it's written to. And in these final words, the Bible is telling us, everybody who suffers, hang on. Don't forsake your Lord Jesus Christ. Persevere to the end because there's coming a day when every tear that we have for every form of suffering that we've gone through will be wiped away from our eyes and we will enter into an eternal state where there will be no more mourning, there will be no more death, there will be no more sin as Jesus makes all things new. In heaven... We will finally be able to worship God the way we want to worship God and serve God the way we want to serve God, freed from the corruption and the presence of sin. In heaven, Jesus is going to lead us into ever-increasing joy and all of our wounds. The self-inflicted ones, the ones inflicted by others, are all going to be healed. Several years ago, a tweet from uh, Scott Sauls it made its rounds, and it got onto social media and Instagram. All of a sudden, I'm seeing it everywhere. And, I, and that tweet, was, it, was, it was a great, it was a good phrase. And it's one that I think serves us this morning as maybe a, a way to summarize this entire vision and what it, what it means to us. If your hope, Scott Sauls writes, is anchored in Jesus the worst case scenario for you is resurrection and everlasting life. (laughs) Isn't that great? If your hope is anchored in Jesus, the worst case scenario for you is resurrection and everlasting life. What's he saying? He's saying, here's the worst case, guys. uh, In our lives, here's the worst case scenario. One day we're going to die. And then... We're going to spend eternity in heaven with Jesus and all those whom we have loved who trusted in him also. That's our worst case scenario. What's our best case scenario? He returns before we die. <laughs> and then we spend all of eternity in heaven with Jesus. All right? Worst case, best case, either way, it sure is good that we belong to Jesus. And so when we think about that and think about heaven and what awaits us, it doesn't create Christians who don't care about the present. It creates bold Christians, courageous Christians who aren't afraid of the present, who don't live in fear of what's going on in our world. Thinking about heaven puts our worship to God and our service to the kingdom in its proper perspective. It gives us an eternal hope that sees us through the worst of this fallen world, including any suffering that may come our way as society and the world changes around us. It's okay. Because our worst case scenario, it's resurrection. It's heaven with our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, that you love us so much that this is our worst case scenario. (laughs) That we get to participate in your victory. We thank you for the way that we see you moving in this world today. Lord, we pray. We would ask that you come quickly. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We see this, the events of this world. We feel, Lord, the, the pain of death. I mean, even this week, we just grieve with the people in Miami and the collapse of this building and We didn't know those people, but just the the tragedy of death itself came home so anew this week to us. And we remember that we live in a fallen world where sin has consequences and fruit, ultimately death. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Deliver your people from the presence of sin, even as you have already delivered us from its power. In your name we ask these things. Amen.